Man of Steel. Answers, insight, commentary. Episode 33, Fighting Ability. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Inside Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel. This episode, we go back to Krypton and address Jor-El beating Zod, get a little insight into Kryptonian culture, consider Clark's character, and then answer some other combat-related questions. This podcast dives deep into Man of Steel to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate a film that will lead us into the DC Cinematic Universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love Man of Steel and who love to chew their food. Welcome back. For me, I love watching action for what it is, and I generally don't relish analyzing it for logical rigor. But when action scenes are done well, not only do they provide visceral entertainment, they give us insight into the characters and the larger story. It's easy to dismiss the fights in Man of Steel as mindless action and pure spectacle, but when you really look at them, we get a picture of Kryptonian society. We learn who Zod and Feora are, and we can be inspired by Superman. Just on a technical level, the fight are modern and wonderfully executed. When I was growing up, fight choreography mostly featured clumsy brawls. But then we got hit by a wave of highly choreographed and stylized martial arts. Well, today, the pendulum has swung back to fights that are constructed to appear a little more raw and unpolished. Fights have gone from haymakers and grappling to flying kicks and endless combinations to more brutal strikes and vicious submissions, and perhaps more concise and technical fighting. The general audience has arguably increased in its knowledge and sophistication about fighting from the days when Bruce Lee was an exotic oddity until today when mixed martial arts dominate over boxing and professional wrestling. It's a tricky tightrope to walk, too slick and you lose your audience's sense of immersion. They feel like they're watching a cartoon, video game, or dance routine, too real and the fight doesn't deliver on the level of excitement and interest that's possible. I think Man of Steel was crafted to hit that sweet spot in terms of modern mainstream tastes in balancing reality and entertainment. And that balance supported the story that it was trying to tell. While Man of Steel holds up remarkably well to analysis of its internal consistency, in general, I usually choose to give action sequences in all films a pass because they are, to me, basically the musical or dance sequence of an otherwise rational film. Action sequences tend to be unapologetically trope-based, and they're guided by genre literacy far more than the rules of reality. If I go to the Hong Kong opera, I expect to see wushu in the presentation. If I go see a Broadway musical, I expect people to sing and dance in harmony without needing an in-story explanation for why. If I pick up a superhero comic book, I expect people to punch each other. And if I'm watching an action movie, I can expect implausible explosions and the like. Nitpicking the contents of a film based on things which help define that genre isn't giving genre literacy its due. 
With all due respect to Grant Morrison, most kids don't ask questions about seeing crabs because they know what to expect from Disney animated features like The Little Mermaid. By the same token, The Martian has undergone harsher scientific scrutiny because it finds itself on the harder end of the science fiction spectrum. What's great about the superhero genre is that it's flexible enough to explore all those kinds of spaces, so it's fair to ask those questions until you can figure out where you are. The instant someone flies with a cape doesn't mean that all reality goes out the window and that you have to have talking animals. Although you could, like with Crypto the Superdog. You can fly just like Superman! You're even wearing the S! Who are you? Crypto from Krypton! That's where Superman's from! Superman, our greatest hero, you're just like him! But it also doesn't mean that everything has to be starkly real either. Although you could be carefully crafted to be extremely self-consistent like Man of Steel. And I think it's pretty awesome that a character that routinely gets pigeonholed as one note and old fashioned can run the gamut of takes and tastes from crypto to red sun and everything in between. The Superman mythos isn't monolithic. And while you don't have to like every variation or variant, if you're going to judge it fairly, you have to figure out what they're trying to present you with, and then put aside criticisms that are intentional aspects of that approach. We don't nitpick the fact that none of the characters can hear the musical score. That isn't really meaningful criticism about the film. That's ignoring movie-watching literacy, where we know the score is music for us and not the characters in the story. So the vast majority of questions, criticisms, and nitpicks with respect to the action could fall under this sort of umbrella. And it's kind of a chore to have to articulate that for each and every action-related decision. Nonetheless, the remarkable thing about Man of Steel is that even without this umbrella, it mostly holds up, where you can answer these questions in an internally consistent and logical fashion. So although this isn't my cup of tea, we're going to go back to Krypton to answer the questions that are basically some variation of the following. Why can a scientist fight? Why could Jor-El defeat Zod? And how does Kal-El defeat Zod. There are a ton of assumptions embedded in these questions, but let's just do the quick answers and then let the film enlighten us and we'll back up our reasoning. So here are the quick answers before we get into the analysis. Why can a scientist fight? Jor-El is a warrior and a nobleman in a warrior culture as well as being a scientist. Why could Jor-El defeat Zod? Well, Jor-El and Zod would have had equivalent training in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And then how does Kal-El defeat Zod? Zod's emotions, Clark's character, luck, and mutual inexperience. Okay, so those answers need explaining, and much of it is covered in the first moments of the film, but those answers are just based on observations and inference. I'd love to hear your theories as well, provided that they're consistent with the contents of the film, but on to the observations. So before Jor-El, as a scientist, enters the picture, what does the film actually show us? Well, let's quickly consider the big picture. It shows us a man who meets with heads of state in armor. It shows us a person who is a peer and a former friend of a would-be revolutionary. It shows us somebody who has contingencies against capture and who can defeat armed guards with surprise strikes and shooting without hesitation. It shows us someone who has a trusty flying steed or mount, which we can learn is called a war kite. It shows us a man of action who 
sheds one suit of armor to commence a heist and then who literally dives away from gunfire and explosions. It shows us a man who lives in a citadel, which is another name for a fortress or a castle, a dwelling that's hardened against military siege and which in fact has defenses which can hold up against vehicle-mounted weaponry. It shows us a man who has a spare suit of armor in that citadel and mechanical assistance in suiting up. And finally, it shows us that he has no compunction about dropping two more of Zod's men and briefly matching and temporarily defeating Zod in hand-to-hand combat. Those are the objective facts, the events that occur on screen. And if you go simply by that, there is every expectation that Jor-El should be capable of fighting because that's what the film shows us. It only becomes an issue when we either bring in our own preconceptions of who Jor-El is, or when the film later presents us with the idea that Jor-El is a scientist and that Kryptonian society has a strict caste system. So any theory that we develop has to address these facts that we've just listed and reconcile them with Jor-El being a scientist within a caste system in order to maintain internal consistency. And I believe that the answer falls in some combination of one or more of these three explanations. Jor-El's Kryptonian culture is a warrior culture, and or Jor-El's lineage and privilege inherits warrior trappings and opportunities, and or Jor-El himself is a warrior. So let's unpack our observations and see how these explanations are supported by the evidence. Most of these are established inside the first five minutes of the film. After a minute of logos and a minute of an infant's birth, we're given an establishing shot of Kandor, showing the spire where the council resides. Now we don't know any of this from the film yet, but what we do see is a formal and elaborate chamber with only five seats and four guards standing in attention. Do you not understand? Krypton's core is collapsing. We may only have a matter of weeks. I warned you, harvesting the core was suicide. It has accelerated the process of implosion. Our energy reserves were exhausted. What would you have us do, Al? Look to the stars, like our ancestors did. There are habitable worlds within reach. We can begin by using the old outposts. Are you seriously suggesting that we evacuate the entire planet? No. Everybody here is already dead. Give me control of the Codex. I will ensure the survival of our race. There is still hope. I have held that hope in my hand. Jor-El is being heard. So we know that this council is at the highest level because they have the authority to harvest the core of the entire planet and to effectuate the evacuation of the planet. These are powerful people. They apparently control the Codex, which Jor-El says can ensure the survival of their people. Their importance is reaffirmed by Zod's entrance, who then further establishes that these lawmakers are essentially Krypton's rulers, who have, Zod says, led them to ruin. In Zod's mind overthrowing them would make Zod the leader of Krypton. So in less than two minutes, the film has established the importance and the power of this council. So what does that tell us? Well, this is Krypton's highest office, the throne room or the oval office of this entire planet. The fact that Jor-El has their ear and is able to talk before them on a subject that they're clearly skeptical of shows how relatively important Jor-El is. An ordinary person 
doesn't just get to stroll into the Oval Office and then berate the president for his inaction. This tells us that Jor-El is important, that he has the authority or the confidence to directly criticize the council in person. Now consider briefly, what is Jor-El wearing? Well, it's a cape with elaborate armor. And while there are no absolute rules to fashion or to culture, I think we get the idea that this is a highly formal society, given their ornate dress, the elaborate council room, and the attending guards. And this allows us to stand on the principle that addressing such a formal governing body is a formal occasion where you would dress up in something that's respected by that society. You wouldn't dress necessarily for your field of competency. For example, a professional hockey player wouldn't enter the Oval Office in full gear. Instead, because our capitalistic democratic republic typically elects to its highest office businessmen or lawyers, the president wears a suit and guests will wear suits. Unsurprisingly, warlords in military dictatorships may dress in military regalia. So if Jorel is in the highest office on the planet and he's wearing something as martial as armor, I think it reflects the values of this culture, that this martial culture respects capes and armor and that those are proper attire at the highest level. So even in two minutes, we already have an idea that this culture has some martial or warlike tendencies. They come from a, obviously a, a military culture, a warrior culture. On Krypton, they're a military culture. Of course, for all we know, Jor-El might be a little poncy and putting on something that's a little affected rather than practical fashion. Consider, for example, what the council themselves are wearing, or consider the white wigs that British judges and barristers wear even today. Fashion need not be practical. However, Zod's entrance excludes that possibility immediately. Here is Zod, actively accomplishing a military coup, wearing and wielding what would be most appropriate and effective for such a pragmatic military mission. And he and all his followers are wearing capes and armor. In other words, the same thing Zod is wearing on a mission is the same thing Jor-El is wearing when addressing Krypton's highest council. Now, no, we're only three and a half minutes into the film. The word scientist has yet to be uttered. In fact, Zod doesn't say it until interrogating Cal in the dream machine. So if we put aside our expectations and our preconceived notions, we can't be certain that Jor-El is a scientist yet. The matters being discussed with the council do have a scientific component, but they are of such universal import that anyone could raise those kinds of issues, be it an energy secretary or space exploration cabinet member or whatever. At this point, if you know nothing about Jor-El, you would be forgiven if you believed him to be a general or some sort of military leader, and that gets reinforced by Zod's acknowledgement, recognizing Jor-El as a peer. Zod says, Then join me. Help me save our race. And who will decide which bloodline survives on? You? Don't do this, El. The last thing I want is for us to be enemies. You have abandoned the principles that bound us together. I will honor the man you once were, Zod. Not this monster you've become. So clearly, these two have history, and they considered themselves bound together at one point a point that Jor-El honors. To be enemies is the last thing that Zod wants. Here's Michael Shannon on his approach to his relationship with Jor-El. When I found out he was going to be doing the part, I was nervous. I kept trying to wrap my head around how to be his equal. But I think in the end, uh, we decided that in a way, he was kind of a mentor to Zod. Someone who meant a lot in Zod's life, you know, and someone he learned a lot from. And then Zod later says, I was Krypton's military leader, your father our foremost scientist. Your father acquitted himself with honor, Cal. You killed him. 
I did. And not a day goes by where it doesn't haunt me. There's a cool thing that Michael Shannon does right after he actually deletes Jarrell for the final time. And there's that look of he's not happy about it, you know, to have to do that to his friends. So it's kind of cool. It's a, great, it's a great little bit. Because they come from a, obviously a, a military culture, a warrior culture, is that we, we gave them their own sense of style, but their base foundation, you'll see some of the same movements. But again, since they both basically were, were from the same culture, they were friends, they had a similar base and foundation. So this person attempting a military coup is friends with Jorel, a man in armor with the ear of the council. Zod commands his minions to take Jorel away, and we're only four minutes into the film, and Jorel flattens Zod's men in about 40 seconds. Granted, he cheats. Like Batman, he's got contingencies planned, which allow him to blind his captors. And then with his eyes still closed, he connects with a left back fist, follows with a headbutt, and then he uses pressure points to take control of a weapon, shoot a guard. He takes a punch to the face, then kicks in a captor's knee, frees the weapon for himself with a right elbow, knocks the guard out using the stock of the gun, and then Jor-El shoots two of Zod's men and races out to see the rebellion while still carrying the rifle. So if there was any question as to whether Jor-El could fight, the film definitively answers it as a fact inside the first five minutes. Jor-El clearly possesses technique and tenacity. He has traps. He can take a punch. He delivers knockouts and shoots from the hip. He is no stranger to fighting or violence, and he doesn't do that cliche movie thing of throwing away his weapon. He hangs on to it even as he emerges from the spire. So to review, in the first five minutes, we're shown that Jor-El is a father, that Jor-El is important and a former friend of Zod, and that Jor-El can unequivocally fight. The film is providing this as vital exposition right up front, and as long as you don't ignore it, you can accept it as a given, since it was literally given to us visually that Jor-El can fight. Therefore, any questions or criticisms that start from the assumption that Jor-El can't or shouldn't be able to fight are clearly coming from a place that's counterfactual to the film. Who told us or showed us that Jor-El can fight? The film did, inside the first five minutes. Well, who told us that Jor-El shouldn't be able to fight? Literally no one inside the film. Believing that Jor-El shouldn't be able to fight is counterfactual. It doesn't match with what is explicitly revealed by the film. So it must be based on assumptions or inferences made by the confused critic, which has no authority and can be readily unraveled simply by paying attention to the first few minutes of the film. Now, before we get into all that unraveling, I want to take a little detour and point out that this is a pragmatic projectile-based warrior culture. The influence of feudal societies and warriors like medieval knights, Japanese samurai, or the Spartans, well, they were all ancient warriors who fought by necessity with sword and spear in melee combat, which in turn has romanticized melee combat somewhat. However, make no mistake, if any of them had access to Kryptonian plasma weapons or modern firearms, they would trade in their swords and spears in a second. Despite the choreographed and compelling hand-to-hand combat, the filmmakers didn't forsake the grounded reality and the efficacy of practical projectile weapons. When Zod storms the legislation chamber, they dispatch the sapphire guards with their plasma weapons. Jor-El is escorted by guards with rifles, and he stops multiple people using the rifle. And when we see the larger battle, the ship-to-ship combat is happening with guns. The filmmakers put thought and care into the design of these weapons to build up the world and make it plausible and realistic. These Kryptonian weapons, my question is, it looks a lot like the armor that they use for Jor-El and a lot of the Kryptonians. Is that what you guys 
had in mind? Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, a lot of the Kryptonian technology mm -hmm. comes from organic things that you just found on the planet, right? So okay. we wanted the guns to be similar to the armor. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the same materials that make up, say, the scout ship or yeah. the armor or anything like that, that's what goes into the gun. And it shoots a ball of plasma. So it's got kind of a projectile gel or something, you know, and when it yeah. hits you, it spreads out and kind of dissolves into you. It's pretty nasty, it's actually. Pretty yeah. Reveal that our military found a number of weapons in the functional dropship, abandoned in the mountainous region near the Arctic Circle. Sources close to both the military and DARPA have indicated that the various types of weapons seem to be made from a microcosm of the materials from the planet. These weapons have an animal-like, almost skeletal-like design. They are contoured and are as smooth as bone, yet with a lead-like weight to them. Their function and blast capabilities are sourced from plasma energy. Scientists are still trying to understand how Kryptonians could harness and contain this power in a singular mobile unit, like a rifle or handheld pistol, let alone create a weapon that could manipulate plasma energy into an effective and deadly discharge. According to transcripts obtained from classified conversations, when the rifle was disassembled, weapons experts discovered hundreds of tiny hairs lining the interior barrel. These seem to act as a conduit to conduct the charge. The end of the barrel is surrounded by a jaw-like apparatus, which opens when the rifle fires and secretes a mucus-like coating around the discharge. Incidentally, during Jorel's escape, we do see what stray fire does to the walls. So these weapons weren't set to stun. And so the filmmakers haven't forsaken rationality for style, even on the highly stylized world of Krypton. War isn't conducted through hand-to-hand -hand combat or martial arts, but at the end of a rifle. And so a soldier's first and foremost competency will and should be in projectile weaponry and not hand-to-hand -hand combat. And that priority drops even further for a commander or a supreme military executive like Zod. For Zod, martial arts would be a footnote at best. He would be focused on command and leadership, deploying and supplying entire forces. And then he would have to know something about mechanized and aerial combat, how to pilot the vehicles and the ships, which would make the biggest impact. And then somewhere down the line from that, Zod would have to be familiar with the primary projectile weaponry of the infantry. And buried below all of that, there would be some training for hand-to-hand -hand combat. That said, we have some indications that melee combat is still a larger priority in Krypton than in modern human warfare. Zod had a knife built into his armor. Feora carries a knife into battle and appears especially proficient at martial arts. And they all wear armor, which isn't exactly stopping any of that small arms fire as far as we can tell. Additionally, the Sapphire Guards have ceremonial double-ended lances. So while projectile weapons are the preference in this warrior culture, there is a heightened value on hand-to-hand -hand combat. Of course, if guns are preferred, then why do none of the fights on Earth involve or feature guns? Well, when you're trying to reconcile a general rule and differing outcomes, always consider what distinguishes one circumstance from the other. Those distinguishing facts may be the key to refining your rule to account for both conditions. Here, the proposal is that Kryptonians prefer guns over martial arts, and that's clearly what we see on Krypton, but less so on Earth. Well, consider the differences. In the case of storming the council, they wanted to be effective. They wanted to kill the guards. They wanted to kill the council. And so they used guns. However, in Smallville, remember what Zod was after. The Codex is not here. Where has he hidden it? I don't know. Where is the Codex? 
That's right, the Codex. Even after interrogating Kalal and coming to Kansas, they were no closer to finding the Codex, and Kalal was still their best chance of finding it. Therefore, Zod, Feor, and Namek never wanted Kalal dead in the Battle of Smallville. They wanted to recapture him, and using their powers was a better path to recapturing Kalal than shooting him dead. Of course, there are two counterarguments to this. First, that the dropship does shoot Cal in order to extract Zod, and then there's the question of why they didn't take Martha hostage in order to recapture Cal. There are a couple different rebuttals, but to keep this rabbit trail from going too far, I'll just pick two. In terms of shooting Cal, we've already seen that Zod commands one of his ships to bring down Cal's vessel containing the Codex back on Krypton. And that implies to me that Zod is willing and their vehicles are able to fire disabling shots without fear of disintegrating the Codex or the path to the Codex in the case of shooting Superman. In terms of taking Martha hostage, I think it genuinely never occurs to Zod that Cal might care about Martha on that level until the end of the film. Think about it. Zod discloses his terrible plan to Cal and asks him to join him. That makes no sense if Zod believes that Cal loves his mother. Zod again pleads with Cal to spare the scout ship so that he can go about exterminating the human race. A plea that's crazy if Zod believes that Cal loves his mother. It's only after Cal turns it all to dust that Zod finally finds it conceivable that Cal would select these inferior beings over the hope of returning Krypton to its former glory. And it's part of the reason that he's so completely outraged in the final battle and why he specifically calls out Cal's selection of humanity over Krypton and why he says, if you love these people so much, you can mourn for them. Zod does not consider humanity his peer or equal on any level. To him, first contact with humanity is a means to an end. In his ultimatum, he's looking past all the terrified people at Kal-El in search of the Codex. In retrieving Cal, he sends his subordinate rather than going himself. He never has a conversation with a human. That would be beneath him. It would be like talking to an ant. Billions of lives, thousands of years of civilization, art, history, knowledge. It's meaningless to Zod, who considers them nothing more than gravel, foundational material for his new Krypton, and barely worth the inconvenience or pain of adapting to their atmosphere. Zod lacks any kind of empathy for humanity, and holding that low a view of humanity, Zod would never imagine Cal bending to his will for the sake of a mere human. Alright, so getting back on track from this tangent of a tangent, Krypton is a military or martial culture, and while we can reason all this from the diegetic clues within the film, it's also pretty self-evident from Zack Snyder's filmography, not to mention explicit statements from the filmmakers. They come from, a, obviously, a, a military culture, a warrior culture. On Krypton, they're a military culture. It's evident that Snyder has an interest in warrior cultures. 300 took us to ancient Greece and the city-state of Sparta. Legend of the Guardians explored a fantasy warrior culture. Sucker Punch visits feudal Japan battling 12-foot-tall samurai, among other battlefronts. It should be little surprise that Krypton might take on warrior themes and that the military plays a big part in the story both on Krypton and on Earth. The Laconophilia of Sparta shows up in Man of Steel in a couple of places, Smallville's football team, and Clark reading Plato's Republic, a work which romanticized, idealized, and admired Sparta as a foundation of Plato's ideal society. Forensic and linguistic teams dug deeper into Kryptonian history and discovered that there was a guild or a caste system in place. 
Like feudal Japan, Krypton was a highly stratified society ruled by a set of rigid customs. Snyder actually had an entire unseen mythos or backstory to Krypton's history, the Codex, and the relationship between Jor-El and Zod. The question was raised by Steve Yunus of the Superman homepage for the Yahoo Movies Blu-ray release event, hosted by Kevin Smith. Hey Zach, Steve Yunus here from supermanhomepage.com. Can you explain where that came from, what it was, how the Codex became engraved or embedded in the skull? Just some background information about that would be great. Thanks. My idea for the Codex was that that skull was sort of the first Kryptonian that they could identify in their evolution as whatever the Kryptonian version of Homo sapiens. So that they traced their lineage back and they had found this skull and this was the first physical incarnation of what a Kryptonian, ideal Kryptonian would be. So that's sort of the raw material for the DNA. The DNA that you see the Codex being extracted from, we always imagined that that was sort of the raw material and then came out each individual sort of the little subtlety differences in differences and whether you were going to make a warrior or a scientist scientist or whatever they were constructing in the in the Genesis chamber, those things were then changed as the stream came out of the out of that skull. And then I also we were saying that the way it was engraved was because it was a while that skull had been fought over and different factions of whether it be religious or scientific ha- had warred over the skull and many people had died and so some culty monk group had like carved the different Kryptonian sayings in the skull and, and then finally when it was wrestled away by whatever factions created the Genesis Chamber and the sort of construction of Kryptonian society as it is we see it now, they were able to get it to the Genesis Chamber and start to create it. And I would say that there was probably in the other Genesis Chambers across Krypton, there might be a femur or a little chip, you know, just like saints, you know, you might, you don't get the whole skull. But in, in the capital there, you're going to have a pretty important piece of, of that skeleton, but maybe in other cities you get smaller ones. So I don't know. That's a general... Yeah. That is not that is not general. That is the opposite of general. That was the most specific response. You could have just been like the codex, dude. Let's move on. But you actually put some thought into it. Is that what goes on in pre-production? It's like, look, we better be watertight. I mean, you know, at a certain point you gotta suspend the window of disbelief because it's about a guy who flies, but you like no, to be watertight I, with your logic. I, I'm really into that kind of stuff. I've, I always feel like, oh, it's cool if like our mythology is kind of bulletproof, you know, that you have a ba- you can create a backstory for anything. You know, actors do it all the time. Create a backstory for this character or this thing and I like to do it for everything as much as I can and you know of course all that could be changed anytime because I could go you know what no well actually it wasn't that it was this and then it's just I make up another thing right. um, <laughs> but I think though my, my point is only though that I feel like it just makes the, the world so much richer when you really believe that like you know just like when Zod and, and um, Jor-El are talking about like in the era of the warring states and whatever relationship they had and who knows what adventures they went on and how they fought and how a rift happened between them while Snyder's statements were non-canonical And as he says himself, those backstories can change with a whim if he so decides. And you can listen to our last episode about the rationale for why creator intentions that don't make the cut aren't necessarily canon. Those statements still give us insight into the creative intentions and the backstory of this world. Now, if Goyer's series ever gets picked up, they may be taken in yet another different direction. But for now, Krypton was unambiguously a warrior culture. And in Snyder's mind, Jor-El is a warrior who has fought alongside 
aside Zod in the past. And if you set aside your preconceived biases as to who Jor-El is, the first five minutes of the film show that plainly, that Jor-El is a warrior among other things. Now, I know I sound like a broken record, but that's because these facts need to be established first. If your professor carefully constructs a fact pattern or a set of circumstances for you to test your issue spotting, knowledge, and argument, it is a serious mistake to fight the facts. That is, reconstruct your own easier hypothetical fact pattern and argue that, rather than address the facts that you're given. Well, we're given in the first five minutes of the film the fact that Jorel can fight. So every theory, discussion, or debate has to include that premise, which was given and established by the film. It's nonsensical to start from a position that Jorel can't. Okay, so how can Jorel, a scientist, be a warrior? And posed like that, it's probably quite obvious why the criticism or the question is flawed, because it assumes that being a scientist is mutually exclusive from being a warrior. Even fans of the film fall victim to this assumption, because they provide explanations like saying that Jor-El trained in secret, or that Jor-El's fighting is based on hyperintelligence. Explanations which are unnecessary if you don't assume that a scientist can't fight on Krypton. Now briefly, the problem with training in secret is that it clearly contradicts Snyder's backstory, but even if you exclude that, it doesn't line up with his proficiency and all his martial trappings. First, you're not going to be particularly good at martial arts if all you did was train by yourself. And second, there's little point to hiding your martial training if you're going to live in a citadel, ride a war kite, befriend General Zod, and wear armor everywhere, right? <laughs> in terms of hyperintelligence, the bottom line is that fighting doesn't work that way. Unless Jor-El is literally superhuman on Krypton, fighting in many ways is faster than conscious thought. You don't get to use your intellect and your intelligence in that way. Consider the feat of connecting with a baseball. I'm about to face a fastball from Matt over there on the mound. In order for me to hit the ball, there's a very complex series of processes that has to happen in my brain. He pitches at 92 miles an hour, so that doesn't give me very much time to hit the ball. Okay, ready? leaves the mound and starts on its way to the home plate. This journey of 60 feet 6 inches will take place in around 4 tenths of a second. And in that time, there's a huge amount for my brain to do. The light from the baseball needs to hit my eye, work through the many miles of circuitry in my brain, and send signals to my muscles to swing the bat. This entire sequence unfolds in just a fraction of a second. But here's the surprise. My conscious awareness hasn't yet had time to register what's going on. I strike the ball without thinking and only become aware of what's happened after the event. By the time the conscious mind gets the information, it's already old news. 
And this is because the ball simply travels too fast for me to be consciously aware of its position. And this is not just true of baseball, but in all areas of our life. As fighting occurs at speeds, which require largely unconscious thought, intelligence doesn't really heavily factor in. While intelligence increasing fighting prowess is a fun superpower to throw into fiction, it isn't practical reality. If it were, we could take the world's fastest and greatest Twitch gamers and expect them to prevail against conditioned professional MMA fighters. As the famous Mike Tyson quote goes, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Again, these are the bad explanations of how Jor-El can fight. What happens if we discard the assumption of mutual exclusivity? Can people on Krypton be more than one thing? Well, sure, we can see proofs of this simply by looking at the council. They are all lawmakers and guild members. So, for example, a council member and a warrior. Consider for a second what Zod wants to be. He wants to rule and be military. Consider what Jor-El is. We explicitly see that he's capable of fighting, and Zod calls him their foremost scientist. The film itself proves repeatedly that the ability to fight need not be mutually exclusive from being a scientist. And we can arrive at societal structures which allow for that fairly easily, just by looking at our own history. Power and wealth collect with what society values, be that intellectuals, the church, royalty, or warriors. I've stressed that Krypton is a military or feudal culture, and that could mean that everyone can fight, at least to a certain degree. Even today, mandatory or compulsory military service is a part of citizenship in countries like Taiwan, Egypt, Brazil, Israel, and so on. Certainly in ancient Sparta, martial training was nearly universal, and in feudal societies, conscription and the corresponding training of even the lowliest members of society could be expected. In a society where going to the Oval Office means donning your best armor, knowing how to fight may be as common and expected as learning to read or to write. Of course, the training that a conscript receives is different than what a nobleman receives, and that's why I highlighted the fact that Jorel has the ear of the council. Jorel is important. He has stature and rank in that society. Average people can't hold exclusive hearings with the highest governing body. A lowly scientist wouldn't have an entire citadel to himself, two sets of armor, a mount, and the resources to build a private spacecraft in secret during an energy crisis, and the ability to keep a pregnancy hidden. It's clear that Jor-El is a man of means. In fact, it turns out that he comes from one of the 14 elite houses of Krypton. What they wore was representative of their family dynasty. Upon review of papers obtained by our investigators and according to genealogy experts, there were likely 14 houses that represent the oldest and most elite family lines in Kryptonian society. Each of the house's emblems or glyphs would adorn their homes and clothing. So consider what this means in a feudal society. In a culture where your fighting ability is valued, your noblemen are expected to learn sword fighting and horseback riding and archery, even if they will probably never spill their blue blood in a cavalry charge. The training comes from their station in life, irrespective of their expected participation in combat. The nobleman's actual societal function might be that of a banker or a tax collector, ambassador, architect, artist, or philosopher, but nonetheless he receives training 
thing as all nobles would. These cultural expectations doesn't mean that there isn't a caste system. It just shows how universally valued martial abilities are in that culture and system. Okay, but even if those abilities are universally valued, that doesn't mean that a scientist should be able to beat a general, does it? No, it doesn't. But people make a lot of undue assumptions about the impossibility of Jor-El beating Zod. And the argument basically goes like this. Zod was Krypton's military leader, and by his own admission, he was bred to be a warrior and trained his entire life. How could he lose to Jor-El, a scientist? In this world, with their predetermined roles, how could a scientist be better than Zod at hand-to-hand -hand fighting? Well, those questions make the following assumptions. First, that the highest military command rank means the best or the better hand-to-hand -hand fighter. Second, that Jor-El could not be equal in skill. Third, that fighting is deterministic, that the better fighter always wins. Fourth, and finally, and most important, that Kryptonian society was right. So let's quickly dismantle these assumptions one by one. We don't actually know where Zod ranks in terms of his talents as a hand-to-hand -hand fighter. All we know is that Zod is Krypton's military leader. However, being a leader in a field doesn't mean being the best at every subset within that field. I wouldn't expect the supreme military leader to also be the best pilot, the best sharpshooter, and certainly not the best martial artist. Likewise, I don't expect the best talent to automatically ascend to the heights of leadership. The Philistines sent out Goliath, not a general or a king. They're different skills and roles that need not imply the other. The world's greatest free throw shooter was a dairy farmer in his 60s. I'll put a link in the show notes. Moreover, this kind of merit-based thinking is misplaced on Krypton. We know this because leadership is predetermined. We know that there's an exclusive club of elite houses, and we know this because Jorel says, Every child was designed to fulfill a predetermined role in our society as a worker, a warrior, leader so in our own culture our highest military leader the commander in chief is the president and generally not revered for their hand-to-hand -hand combat abilities simply because of their position zod would know from birth that he was destined for command that he wouldn't be expected to fight in the trenches and he wouldn't have to earn his leadership position through hand-to-hand -hand combat so any specialized training that he would have received would be for command and leadership not martial arts further we can observe that Zod isn't Krypton's greatest hand-to-hand -hand fighter. Feora appears to be better at martial arts than Zod. If we measure how many blows that Cal is able to land, Feora is practically untouchable compared to Zod, whom Cal already struggled mightily with. Similarly, Jor is, for whatever the reasons may be, able to defeat Zod, so any theory about Krypton's society or their training has to reconcile what the film actually showed us. If Jor-El beating Zod seems wrong, based on the assumptions that it's impossible, you you must discard that assumption because Jor-El did beat Zod. So if you're looking to reconcile what happened in the film, consider the possibility that the assumptions of what cast Jor-El or Zod fall into isn't what you may assume. Think about what Jor-El says again. Every child was designed to fulfill a predetermined role in our society as a worker, as a warrior, a leader, and so on. Note that warriors and leaders can't be mutually exclusive because Zod is both, and the council member represents 
representing the Warrior Guild is both. Note too that Jor-El doesn't mention scientists as a predetermined role. In other words, even in this caste system, people can and do play multiple roles across the system. We don't know exactly how, but we've raised at least three possibilities. Jor-El could have been born a leader, as a privilege of coming from the bloodline in the House of El, and that status of nobility gave him access to warrior training, as well as the duties of a scientist. Or Jor-El could have been born a warrior. But in a martial society, warriors are a privileged class who take on specialized positions and leadership from the other castes. So for example, a warrior scientist could outrank a thinking guild scientist in the eyes of the council. This is pretty common in feudal societies, where your feudal lords are technically warlords and generals and warriors, but they actually end up playing more specialized administrative roles in society. A warlord gets to act as a tax collector or ambassador, a samurai gets to be a poet or a philosopher, or a knight gets to be a saint or a holy man. That's because the warrior class in a feudal society gets special treatment beyond a pure meritocracy. As a trite illustration, imagine if the jocks are popular and rule in your school. So a star player can be elected to student government for his performance on the court or in the field, rather than his merits as a rep. Finally, a third option, Jorel could have been born a scientist, but his bloodline and his nobility elevated him accordingly. So imagine if in a feudal society, his line or his house started as warlords, but they took on tax collecting duties, so he would be born into a house of tax collectors, but still be expected to be the noble who could act as a warlord. Any one of these possibilities and more that you can imagine would give Jor-El access to martial training. Certainly we have examples from our own history. The legendary Miyamoto Musashi is the author of the Book of Five Rings, and he was known as a minister, an artist, a poet, teacher, and philosopher. Yet he was also one of Japan's greatest swordsmen. Excellence or assignment to one field does not automatically preclude ability in another. So even if we've explained why Jor-El has access to military training, why wouldn't Zod's martial training be any better? Well, if you discard the assumptions of which castes they fall into, it makes perfect sense. Well, if they were both born warriors inside the same caste, then their training would be the same. If they were both born leaders, then their training would be the same. If they were both born outside the warrior caste, if Zod was born a leader and Jor-El a scientist, then their training would be the same. It's only if Zod was born a warrior with no expectations of being a leader in a society that predetermines if you're going to be a leader even before you're born, and if Jor-El was born a scientist with no expectations of picking up martial skill in a hierarchical society that is clearly a martial culture, would there be an inherent discrepancy that could be expected? So there are far more combinations where their training would be the same rather than different. Now, as far as martial experience, that is, the experience of having fought in the past, you can simply rehash all the arguments we've already had, but simply replace training with experience. And that coincides with Snyder's idea that Jor-El and Zod have fought side by side in the past. Now, note, all of this doesn't mean that Jor-El's criticism isn't accurate. Anyone born in Zod or Jor-El's place would have the exact same advantages and opportunities. They just wouldn't have any opportunities beyond that, beyond what society intended. Kryptonian society is still rigid, just not necessarily defined the way that you might initially assume. And by testing our assumptions, it gives us a better picture of how Kryptonian society might be ordered or structured. And it's cool to come in as an investigator and challenge your assumptions rather than lay your assumptions on top of the movie and then critique it from that position, which just simply isn't fair or makes any sense. 
Okay, so on to our next assumption. And everything that we've been discussing is about closing the gap in skill. But all of those explanations are only necessary if we make one other assumption. And that's that fighting is deterministic, which is to say that the outcome is predetermined by the skill level of the participants. And we don't have to make that assumption. We don't have to believe that the better fighter always wins. In reality, being better just increases your probability of winning, but it doesn't guarantee your victory. And if it did, we wouldn't watch sports, we wouldn't have fantasy leagues, we wouldn't gamble on events, or pay to watch rematches, even if there's a gap in skill. We know that upsets happen. On any given Sunday, either team can win. That there's always a puncher's chance. That the underdog can win. That David can slay Goliath. And denying that makes you a Philistine. Here, Jorel temporarily drops Zod once in under a minute. So that's less than a three-minute boxing round or a five-minute round in MMA. Is overperforming over the first opening seconds of a fight really so impossible or unthinkable? Think about the respective stakes and the mindsets going into this fight. Zod just wants one thing, the codex, and he's already bargaining from a position of mercy. He says to Jorel, I know you stole the codex, Jorel. Surrender it and I'll let you live. In fact, he needs Jorel to live in order to find out where the codex is. His mindset is on negotiation and holding back. But from Jorel's perspective, he considers this a second chance for all Krypton. His mindset is that he's breaking the law, he's sending away his only son, and he's gambling it all for this. He is fully committed to this desperate course of action. And that difference in mindsets and convictions could be enough to allow Jorel to prevail once over 45 seconds even if there was a skill gap. And just because Jorel prevails in the beginning doesn't mean that he wins in a longer or sustained fight. Indeed, he doesn't. After all, Zod does end up killing Jorel. Okay, the last assumption is the most maddening one because it undermines the entire point of Jorel's position. Remember, Jorel's entire reason for having a natural born child, for believing that all of Krypton was dead, for not accompanying Kal-El to Earth, for not telling Kal-El who he was until he reached adulthood, it was all because Jorel considered Kryptonian culture and society hopelessly defective and wrong. When you assume that Zod should have been a better fighter and always win against Jorel, you're assuming that Kryptonian society was right. You're agreeing with Krypton that they produced the best warriors by breeding and predestination and programming. Jorel's entire thesis was that this wasn't true, that given a choice or a chance, their children could be greater than what society intended. Jorel had Having the capacity to beat Zod, even under those limited circumstances, is proof of his belief. It suggests that society might be better ordered around merit, free will, and choice than programming. Kryptonian society was a mess. We don't have time to get into all the quotes about how its culture and its technology had completely ossified, calcified, and stagnated. But Krypton went headlong into preventable doom. Make a better world than ours, People of Earth are different from us, it's true. But ultimately, I believe that's a good thing. They won't necessarily make the same mistakes we did. Not if you guide them, Cal. Not if you give them hope. 
It shouldn't be at all surprising that Jor-El defies societal expectations. It's a mistake if the audience adopts those expectations as correct, when Krypton's destruction plainly shows that their society and those expectations were broken. So we've established the reasons why Jor-El has the martial abilities that he exhibits, and we've provided the reasons why those skills might be sufficient to temporarily stop Zod. So for our final question, how then can Kal-El defeat Zod? The reasoning goes that if Kal couldn't defeat Feora or Namek, how could he defeat Zod? Kal has no training, while Zod has had a lifetime of training. So Zod should prevail. Well, that is, in fact, what we see for the vast majority of the fight. Zod basically dictates the entire fight until the end, but Kal is able to hang in there. But if he's been a pacifist his entire life who's always held back, how? And so here we're dealing with another set of assumptions. First, that combat victories are transitive. Second, training is the only way that people know how to fight. And third, Zod's training was an unqualified asset. Previously discussed assumptions such as determinism are also rearing their heads, but let's just address the new assumptions. So regarding the assumption of transitive victories, it assumes that combat and victories are mathematically or logically transitive, such that inequalities A greater than B and B greater than C means that A must be greater than C. Well, if victories were linear and mathematical, you could make that assumption. But there's no reason to make that assumption because we know that even simple deterministic competition models don't have to follow that rule. For example, rock, paper, scissors. In the game rock, paper, scissors, the rules are deterministic in that the given input will result in a certain outcome. Nonetheless, even with such simple and streamlined rules, it should be immediately apparent why transitive inequality is inapplicable. All you have to do is work it through, right? Even if scissors beat paper and paper beats rock, you're not free to conclude that scissors beat rock. This is a competition or combat system where there is no transitive inequality, and that applies to the real world as well. One classic example is that aircraft usually beat tanks, tanks usually beat anti-aircraft, but anti-aircraft usually beat aircraft. Here, those relationships are not deterministic or absolute, but probability favors one over the other. Another example is boxing styles when you compare sluggers, swarmers, or outboxers. So the assumptions of transitive inequality in actual combat is faulty. How Cal fares with Feora or Namek, or how Zod fares against Jor-El, does not guarantee a prediction on how they'll fare against one another. But in absolute terms, Cal doesn't have any martial training. What does a pacifist know about how to fight? Well, we can go back to Krypton, its military culture, and its artificial breeding program, and consider that the attributes of being a fighter may have been bred into the Kryptonians. That means that while he's natural born, he's still the product of two selectively bred Kryptonians. And that means that part of his makeup includes fighting. While Clerk can and must exert his free will over that throughout his life, he still has that fight response inside of him. And when faced with fight, flight, or freeze, Clark had to will himself to freeze. But he admitted that that fight response was in him. I wanted to hit that kid. I wanted to hit him so bad. Very often, the fight, flight, or freeze impulse is put in the context of predator-prey relationships. But it also arises in mating rituals within the same species, as slightly less than lethal combat. Jonathan Gottschall is the author of The Professor in the cage, why men fight, and why we like to watch. And he explains his position. So I put this in sort of a biological context. If you've ever seen like a nature video and you've seen a couple of elephant seals clashing in the surf, or you see a couple of mountain goats 
cracking skulls on a hillside. Biologists call those kinds of contests, they call them ritual combat. It's a way that all these different animal species have developed to figure out who's bigger and stronger and tougher and fitter without the danger of actually fighting it out to the bitter end, to the death. And humans are animals too. We sometimes like to forget that, but we're animals, we're complicated animals, we're cultured animals, but we're still animals. And for human versions of ritual combat, everything from deadly duels to verbal duels Mm -hmm. to the play fights of boys, to sports, including sports like mixed martial arts and and football. They will often seem silly and stupid and pathetic, sort of like macho uh, nonsense. But on the whole, they're a good thing. On the whole, we should be grateful for them because they function to channel aggression down relatively safe pathways. And why would animals and why would people care so much about respect? Why would they care so much about status? Well, there's very good reasons. You know, people with a lot of respect and animals with a lot a lot of respect have really good lives. In addition, our bodies prepare us to respond to threatening situations. In some respects, this is why some of us like thrill-seeking experiences like scary movies, bungee jumping, and the like. Simply put, your biology means that you can fight some even without a lick of formal training or experience. Of course, there's no such thing as a free lunch. The advantages that come with a threat response include disadvantages. If there were no trade-offs, we'd simply operate at full threat mode all the time. And one of those trade-offs explains a number of the combat choices, or lack thereof, throughout the film, and it can be briefly summarized as tunnel vision. It's part of an experiment that shows a pretty shocking mistake that any one of us could make. A mistake where you don't notice what's happening right in front of your eyes. As well as a fight, the experiment also involves a chase. It was inspired by an incident in Boston in 1995, when a young police officer, Kenny Conley, was in hot pursuit of a murder suspect. It turned out that this police officer, while he was chasing the suspect, had run right past some other police officers who were beating up another suspect, which of course police officers are not supposed to do under any circumstances. When the police tried to investigate this case of police brutality, he said, I didn't see anything going on there. All I saw was the suspect I was chasing. And nobody could believe this, and he was prosecuted for perjury and obstruction of justice. Everyone was convinced that Conley was lying. Everyone, that is, apart from Chris Chabri. He wondered if our ability to pay attention is so limited that any one of us could run past a vicious fight without even noticing. And it's something he's putting to the test. And when you see someone jogging across the footbridge, then you should get started. Jackie, you can go. In the experiment, the subjects are asked to focus carefully on a cognitive task. They must count the number of times the runner taps her head with each hand. Would they, like the Boston police officer, be so blinded by their limited attention that they would completely fail to notice the fight? About 45 seconds or a minute into the run, there was the fight. And they could actually see the fight from uh, a ways away, and it was about 20 feet away from them when they got closest to them. The fight is right in their field of view, and at least partially visible from as far back as the footbridge. It seems incredible that anyone would fail to notice something so apparently obvious. They completed the three-minute course, and then we said, did you notice anything unusual? Yes. What was it? It was a fight. Sometimes they would have noticed the fight and they would say, yeah, I saw some guys fighting. But uh, a large percentage of people said we didn't see anything unusual at all. And when we asked them specifically about whether they saw anybody fighting, they still said no. In fact, nearly 50% of people in the experiment completely failed to notice the fight. Did you see anything unusual during the run? No. Okay. Did you see some people fighting? No. We did it at nighttime and we did it in the daylight. Even when we did it in daylight, many people ran right past the fight and didn't notice it at all. Did you see anything unusual during the run? Uh, no, not really. Okay. Did you see some people fighting? No. You really didn't see anyone fighting? No. Does it surprise you to 
but you, you yeah. could have missed that. They were about 20 feet off the path. Oh, the, yeah. The, you ran right past them. Completely missed that then. <laughs> okay. Maybe what happened to Conley was when you're really paying attention to one thing and focusing a lot of mental energy on it, you can miss things that other people are going to think are completely obvious. And in fact, that's what the jurors said after Conley's trial. They said, we couldn't believe that he could miss something like that. It didn't make any sense. He had to have been lying. It's an unsettling phenomenon called inattentional blindness that can affect us all. With that story and experiment, you can see that even somebody who is trained and who is expected to be aware of their surroundings isn't all-knowing, under stress, or acting optimally. And this can help you account for why Clark unintentionally brings Zod into downtown Smallville, or how he can be ambushed or surprised by Zod, or how Clark can manage to catch some of the Kryptonians unaware at times. Of course, we don't need to descend entirely into evolutionary biology. Clark is still a sentient and intelligent being. Even if he has no experience at fighting, he knows what it is. He can throw punches and grapple. Even if they're not technically perfect punches or the ideal grappling technique, it's still fighting. The third mistaken assumption is one that Zod makes as well, and that is that his training is an unqualified advantage. In other words, that there are no disadvantages or downsides to being better trained than Clark. However, this conventional thinking can lead to overconfidence. In the story of David and Goliath, conventional metrics give the advantage to Goliath as bigger, stronger, more heavily armed and armored. However, we all know how that ends, with David not trying to match Goliath by wearing Saul's armor, but instead trusting in his prophetic destiny, his lifelong talents, and fighting the battle on his own terms, from a distance with a stone thrown from a sling. Goliath suffered a classic case of overconfidence. If the Philistines could have imagined Goliath losing, they would have more closely tailored the terms of the duel, and they would have required his opponent to fight like him. However, their overconfidence led them to make assumptions, which resulted in their loss. That same weakness can be ascribed to Zod as a consistent character flaw throughout the film. Remember, he was born a military leader. He didn't have to earn his position. He was told from birth that he was uniquely suited for his position, and that their way of life meant that he was the ultimate general. Zod would not have had his station in life challenged, and he would be used to be considered supreme as an entitlement. And so Zod obviously didn't expect that his rebellion would have failed. Zod didn't think that Jor-El would beat him. Zod couldn't imagine a different way of life or compromise or diplomacy. Zod couldn't imagine Kal-El preferring the lowly humans over Kryptonians. Zod couldn't imagine humanity or Kal-El ever being a threat to him. If he had the humility to imagine any of those things, we could speculate on how differently things would have gone. But for the purposes of this episode, let's just focus on that final battle. If Zod genuinely considered Kal-El an equal, a threat on his level, well, the fight would have been much more businesslike and resemble the fight that Zod had on Krypton with Jor-El, which is to say, nothing but a fight. However, against Kal-El, Zod stops to taunt Kal from the street. He briefly mocks Kal's lack of training. He plays games with things that are unlikely to kill Kal-El, such as throwing trucks and swinging I-beams or hurling satellites. We know that Zod has this kind of sadism because of how he terrorized the council, how he wishes Jor-El's hologram pain, and why he intends to make humanity suffer. And Zod's overconfidence leads him to believe that he can indulge in his second disadvantage 
revenge. Zod is fighting from a place of emotional interest where he wants to maximize Kal-El's suffering, not so much his own potential of winning. Zod doesn't blitz Kal-El and then use his superior technique to kill him without a second thought. No, Zod is fighting to cause Kal-El pain. And this is directly contrary to the goals of a fight born of necessity. It made you really get that the main object of fighting is you need to shut down the other guy's brain. When you're trying to defeat your opponent, you want him unconscious as soon as possible. But here, Zod wants Cal to be awake, alert, and to suffer. Note that Zod downs Cal repeatedly throughout the fight, and if his killing instinct was prioritized, he could have pounced on Cal and finished the fight with no referee to stop it. But at every turn, Zod gives Cal just enough time to recover his wits so that he can feel the next round of punishment. Zod's efficiency is compromised and clouded by his emotions. He's enraged in a way that keeps him from being as clinical as Feora can be. Zod's past actions, no matter how violent or cruel, were always in his mind for the greater good of his people. But here, he is finally unfettered from that genetic destiny, and he is able to exercise a sort of free will. Zod could have surrendered. He could have mourned in anguish, but accepted his loss. However, Zod chooses to go down the only path that he's ever known, one of destruction, cruelty, and violence, even after it can no longer be justified. Having lost his purpose, Zod's first act of free will is to make Cal's pain his new purpose. Clark, meanwhile, is fighting an entirely different battle in his mind. Everything he does is a desperate attempt to stop Zod as soon as possible. That's why Clark goes for those extreme double hits early in the fight, first at ground zero and then flying down the building. It's true, those blows resulted in shockwaves, which could have caused collateral damage. But if they managed to knock Zod out, the threat would have been stopped. Zod had explicitly said that he intended to cause casualties and collateral, so he had no motivation to leave Metropolis, and there was no way for Clark to make a conscious Zod move out of the city. So he's desperately looking for a knockout, which would give him some options. And it should come as no surprise that the fight traveled furthest while Clark was unconscious, and Zod took the fight to space. Now there's a cut, and so the next time we see them, they're spinning and grappling, so it's unclear if Zod intended to keep going into space or if that's Clark's doing. I tend to think it's more Zod's initial momentum and then them being unable to change it while grappling with one another. The fact that Zod seems to use the satellite to sort of stop himself perhaps suggests that he doesn't have flight completely locked down, and Clark only has a few days head start in terms of flying experience. Really, neither of them have a complete grasp of how flying affects fighting. A third disadvantage is that Zod has too much training. His training is in the wrong thing, and that means that Zod was holding back, both consciously and unconsciously, rather than accessing his full power. Zod's overconfidence and desire to see Cal suffer meant that he was consciously holding back, but his extensive training would also cause him to hold back. We mentioned earlier how fighting occurs too quickly for the conscious mind, but the workaround for that is to hardwire the training into our brains. As we learn new skills, they change the structure of our brains. They move from software to become part of the hardware of the mind. When we practice new skills, we physically hardwire them. Some people talk about this as muscle memory, but it doesn't have anything to do with our muscles. All the changes are orchestrated across the vast seas of our brain. As we develop from childhood, we all begin to acquire these burnt-in circuits. 
All these are skills that get hardwired into the structure of our brains, making them automatic and energy efficient. But there's a consequence to hardwiring. These skills become hidden from us. They become unconscious. We lose access to the sophisticated programs that we're running. This training allows Zod to completely dominate in a normal exchange of punches, which is what we see. Zod using highly technical counters and combinations like a trained fighter would, whereas Clark is relying on haymakers, flying tackles, and clumsy grappling. Of course, the issue is that all of his training is for normal people at normal power levels. If you are well-trained, your body is trained to fight more conservatively. You may start with tightly controlled jabs, which expose you to fewer openings and which create opportunities to combo on your opponent or transition to more advantageous situations. You fight this way because haymakers are high risk and they leave you open to counters or submissions. Additionally, an undisciplined haymaker creates a high risk of injuring yourself. It's very common for first-time fighters to break their hands, to break their toes, or sustain some kind of injury swinging for the fences without proper technique. Even for professional fighters, going too hard too early in the fight is inviting a high chance of injury, which can haunt you throughout the rest of the fight and result in defeat. All of which is to say Zod's training would have acted as a limiter, causing him to reflexively put less power into his initial strikes. And all of these kind of little differences were built into the fight choreography to subconsciously convey the difference to the audience. I'm going to play a couple of clips about the martial arts in Man of Steel and see you after the break. Hi, I'm Damon. I'm the second year director and the stunt coordinator of the film. Uh, it was an interesting dynamic between the two because Michael came to us with kind of a, a clean slate. He was just raw clay, no prior fight experience, no prior martial art experience. So we molded him from a foundation of, of raw material up. Russell, of course, had a vast background in sword fighting, empty hand fighting, boxing, etc. And then what we kind of did when we worked with them is we took a structure, because they come from a, obviously a, a military culture, a warrior culture, is that we, we gave them their own sense of style, but their base foundation, you'll see some of the same movements. Michael gravitated more towards a, towards a straightforward structure where Russell could angle more he, because of his boxing background and his prior experience. We gave him a little bit more slickness in as far as some of his moves. But again, since they both basically were, were from the same culture, they were friends, they had a similar base and foundation. On Krypton, they're a military culture. So we looked at that and go, okay, what, do we, what sort of basis do we want to give? And we mix some uh, Chinese methods, Filipino methods, a little bit of base of boxing, but we, we kind of tried to create this little hybrid that hadn't really been seen before. Not radically different than other styles we've created before, but just to give it a little flavor of its own. You first have to see what they're good at and then make the decision, okay, do I want to try to push them to a level that, say, might not be natural or go with what they're good at? So Ancha had good lines, really good fluidity, so we kind of made her style uh, a female version of what the Kryptonian form of martial arts was. And for the fight geeks out there, they're going to notice that the guys from Krypton all do similar movements. Feora has a move like a, a palm slap, which on Krypton would be like a you know, right hook or something, but on Earth, I mean, it would disintegrate a human body. So she throws that slap with you know, power, and Zod will do the same thing, but it, they both have different styles. Michael Shannon was really good with straight movement, so we kind of made his moves were a little more straight blasts and more direct stuff. So we had to come up with a movement form for each of them that, that kind of uh, uh, fit their, their storyline. Henry could pretty much do anything you showed him. His character, Superman, he doesn't know this Kryptonian martial arts forms. 
So you almost had to uh, take Henry's crispness and clean lines uh, and training out of it to give him the frat boy haymaker, if you will. So that was kind of fun, just telling him to open his moves up, big strikes and heavy blows, because he's a super uh, power base. Zod had more of a strategic style to him, so it makes for a good fight. Take it away, Henry, man. He wants to know about uh, the fighting styles. Did you, is it it's one thing when Zach's like, look, get in shape like nobody's ever gotten in shape before. Look, fly. But then at the same time, he's like, look, learn judo. Did you have to learn <laughs> fighting? What was up? <laughs> um, well, funnily enough, for a previous movie, I'd learned sort of the base of quite a lot of martial arts just so I could you know, fit the character. And for this one, all the stunt guys who were training me said, forget everything you know, because... In reality, Superman would never have learned a martial art. He'd never have the ability to train with someone because he would do some serious damage just by, you know, touching someone. Um, and so they said, just, you know, really bring it back and go become a brawler. This really big, wide punches. And so there was no sort of specific, specific, excuse me, um, martial art that I had to learn. Um, and that made it easier for me, in fact. So Zod's training was for his normal body on Krypton against normal opponents on Krypton. It wasn't for a body capable of much greater output, much higher default defense, and all those extra dimensions like flight and heat vision. Just as one small example, Zod in combination performs a perfect counter followed by a throat strike to Cal, which would have finished any normal fight. However, in this setting, with these powers, Clark can essentially ignore the throat strike which is completely contrary to Zod's training or expectations. Clark, for his part, has no training except to know that he has these powers. Clark doesn't know how to fight formally. All he knows is that his powers are the only thing that makes him at all relevant in this fight. So it shouldn't be surprising that while fighting on the ground, Feora can completely dominate him and Zod has the advantage. However, when Clark uses moves, which they couldn't and wouldn't have trained for, he's able to connect moves like his high-speed flying tackle and aerial combat. Zod's training would produce unconscious expectations and assumptions about what angles Clark would be coming at him and how hard he could hit. And Clark wouldn't have all this analysis. All he would know is that his flying tackles were working when nothing else was. And so he leans on them heavily. And in doing so, he's able to tap more deeply into his strength than Zod. When he does manage to connect with Zod, his hits tend to be heavier, simply because Clark doesn't know any better or any other way. And that difference in power is critical. Despite the action film tropes associated with martial arts, in combative sports, weight classes are the norm because the difference in available power from just 5 to 10 pounds reliably outweighs technique and experience. Training undoubtedly matters, but strength and conditioning seem much more relevant, and that's why fighting sports aren't filled with elderly martial arts masters, but the young and the fit. Now, some may wonder why I don't simply rely on Clark being stronger or justifying it by saying Clark has soaked up more sunlight over the years. And for me, it comes down to five basic reasons. One, that's not in the movie. Two, that's not how batteries work. Three, Clark was tapped out by the world engine. Four, there's no way to scale that intuitively. And five, there's a long tradition to the contrary.
And we're just going to run through those real quick, I promise. Reason one, it's not in the movie. We're never explicitly told that Clark is stronger than any of the other Kryptonians. And Clark seems to get a strength boost from the oil rig versus when he learns to fly, suggesting that his mindset has more to do with his strength than his time on Earth. Reason two, that's not how batteries work or how hydration works. There's an upper limit to how much you can soak, and soaking longer beyond that limit doesn't suddenly increase your output. Reason three, Clark knows that the fate of the world hangs in the balance. So when he defeats the world engine, he isn't resting on his back for his health. It's because he literally lacks the strength to get up. And that suggests that he's drained of all his reserves until that moment. Another interpretation is that Clark is actually knocked out. But to me, his actions seem deliberate and his eyes look clear. Now, reason four, how much more strength does three decades of sunlight get you over Zod's few scant hours? If strength really is a function of exposure time, then that power curve is extremely steep, such that you have 90% of the same power levels instantly and then take, what, decades to get that last 10%? People who really buy into this theory, I want you to chart out that power curve because I don't think it makes a lot of sense. Finally, reason five, not only is it not in the movie, it's not really in the Superman mythos all that often. We don't have time to go through the long, long list of Superman encountering other Kryptonians throughout history. But in the vast majority of cases, they're on par with Superman in terms of power. Any difference between them is negligible. And usually the experience or training with the powers more than accounts for the difference. Better than saying that Superman has been under the sun longer. For example, even in All-Star Superman, where Superman is turbocharged, he gets wrecked by two Kryptonians who have only been on Earth two months compared to Superman's decades. The great weight of tradition on this is in favor of Kryptonians basically reaching full power instantly. The idea of sun dipping and the like, that's more of a modern invention within a narrow band of continuity. In any case, if you prefer to believe that Clark is stronger, that's fine. He just doesn't appear to be appreciably stronger in a way where he can overwhelm Zod or impose his will upon him regardless. So the difference, if any, is negligible. All that said, despite all these arguments reframing Zod's training as containing hidden disadvantages, at the end of the day, Zod still clearly had the upper hand. And so we go from looking at Kryptonian society to Zod's character and now to Clark's character. Even if this was Clark's first one-on-one -on -one fight, he's been learning quickly, whether consciously or unconsciously. In the Battle of Smallville, Clark learned that he can be knocked out, so he takes pains to avoid getting knocked out in Metropolis, even if Zod Zod does down him repeatedly. In Smallville, Clark learned how it felt to hit in anger and how to be hit with bad intentions. In Smallville, Clark learns that trying to move the fight can increase the risk of collateral when he got Zod off the farm but ended up in downtown. In Smallville, Clark learns that he can't force his will upon the Kryptonians or easily take them out of Smallville. And in fact, he causes some collateral damage with each failed attempt. So therefore, against Zod, his focus is on trying to render Zod unconscious as quickly as possible. In Smallville, Clark learned that Kryptonians are vulnerable to heat vision when he uses it to escape from Feora and Namek's grip. So he doesn't allow Zod to escape his grip by trying to stop the heat vision directly. And in Metropolis, Clark learns twice over that heat vision is too slow to use offensively against another Kryptonian. He dodges Zod's heat vision and Zod counters his heat vision with an eye beam to the face. 
It's also possible that Clark receiving the throat strike and battling Zod in space made him aware that Zod couldn't be choked out. So as that battle went on, Clark's options were rapidly shrinking. He wasn't the better fighter. He couldn't render Zod unconscious. He couldn't force a submission. He couldn't choke him out. And he couldn't take Zod away against Zod's will. Consider how he must have felt and what he was experiencing. Getting seriously hit for the first time is often a dramatic experience. Here's Jonathan Gotchel again, briefly relating the first time he asked his trainer to really hit him. So he lands this really heavy left hook. And now I'll read. Simultaneous with the brain pain, my consciousness flickered out and I started to tip like a chopped tree. But in the next moment, I realized that it was just my perception of the world that was tipping, not my actual body. And when I blinked, the world heaved itself upright. I realized that I was reeling across the cage and Schrader was pursuing with a predatory look in his eyes. I backpedaled, weaving here and there, bouncing off the cage. A few times, I literally turned my back on Mark in panic and ran for it. But no matter how fast I fled, he was always right there hitting me. The barrage never stopped. Shots to the belly, shocks to the arm, whip crack jabs, bomb crosses, and the terrible concussive explosions of his left hooks going off inside my brain filling the cage with a snow of glinting golden flakes. I tried to fight back, flailing my arms in Mark's general vicinity, but he seemed almost offended that I had the gall to try to hit him, and he stung me with counterpunches. After what seemed like forever, Mark backed off to let me gasp. Hiding behind my gloves, I flicked my eyes at the clock. The sight crushed me. There were still nearly two minutes left in a three-minute round, and I was already worn out from the punches and the running and the fear. Now, in that example, he was sport fighting. It was consensual, in a safe environment, with a trusted trainer, and with nothing but his pride on the line. But for Clark, he was being struck by people who wished him ill, who enjoyed his pain, and with the entire world at stake. The emotional content of those blows is completely different. It's why you can shrug off a hard tackle when it's part of a game of football with friends, but when a bully is trying to belittle you, and you can feel their contempt in their punch, Even if it physically hurts less, the latter will stay with you much longer. If a stranger tries and fails to trip you because they despise something about you, that has an effect that goes beyond the potential injury. Zod and Feora are literally disgusted by the natural-born, human-raised Kal-El, and their contempt is evident in their words and in combat. Clark knows what it is to be bullied, to have somebody actually want you dead, and in Batman v Superman, he'll know what it means to be a figure of controversy, to have some build statues in your honor, but for others to chant for you to go away, to being hated without being known or understood. Nonetheless, Clark was raised to forgive and to trust. He'd seen firsthand that people can change if given the chance, which is why just as dramatic as getting hit with bad intentions was hitting somebody else. It's not something he was raised to do, and he would have to overcome that to do what in this context was right. And fortunately, he had been raised by parents who trained him to defer his own preferences and immediate instincts for the sake of the greater good. In simpler times, going with your gut might be enough, but today we need entities who wield that much power to cultivate a conscience that's ruled by sophistication, intelligence, compassion, and complexity, rather than just listen to the raging emotions and primitive instincts that lead us astray and which try to shout out the still small voice. Even if you want to rescue, it might not be the right thing now. Even if you want to fight the bully, it might not be the right thing now. 
Even if you want to save your father, it might not be the right thing now. His parents taught him to rule over his passions and desires for the sake of a greater peace. In his first day on the job, even if Clark doesn't want to fight, he does so because people need him to. It's the right thing now. He's a reluctant warrior, but a wholehearted hero. And this is who he was meant to be. He was born because of hope. He was blessed to save those dreams. And he was raised to help. And despite the hurt and the humiliation of fighting, he learns that he has heart, a spirit that doesn't give up. Zod knocks him down enough times to enter the double digits, and a few of those times he's out and briefly unconscious. When you're downed, the expression of getting your bell rung is apt. You feel like your head is a gong that's just been smashed in and which keeps ringing. It's messing with your senses and your equilibrium. You might have distorted or tunnel vision. Your limbs feel like jelly. You're dizzy, disoriented, uncoordinated, and hurt. Yet he never gives up. He gets up again and again, and he keeps fighting to save humanity. It takes incredible spirit to keep participating in a contest that you are completely losing, to hold out hope and to have faith that you can turn it around despite all odds, and despite what you're experiencing in the moment. Where a lot of other people see a mindless action scene purely meant as spectacle, I see an incredible demonstration of Clark's character and courage. He never retreats, he never cowers, he never gives up, he doesn't quit. And that tenacity to hang on is how he gets Zod to lose his composure, how he gains a momentary advantage, and how he puts a stop to the madness, even at the expense of his own desires and innocence. It is in the dark and violent context of a fight. But combat allows us to test and see the metal and steel of men. In a fight where Zod had the upper hand throughout most of the battle, Clark clung fast to the symbol of the House of El, hope. He never gave up. Clark is outmatched, but his refusal to be broken by Zod causes Zod to retreat twice from a novice during the fight. Zod is the one who wants to engage in the honor of single combat, but he is the first to break the nature of the duel and involve citizens as pawns in a larger emotional game. So in that contest of will, Zod's resolve breaks first. This was his last vestige of possibility to prove his Krypton was right, that his Krypton, through breeding, training, and societal structure produced a warrior superior to this natural-born abomination, this random, chaotic heresy without planning or purpose. But by resorting to hostage-taking, the merits of that were lost and Zod was broken. And all he had left was spite. And even if he didn't want to, Superman stopped Zod because that was the right thing to do. That's another show. It's not an overstatement to say that Superman beat Zod with heart and with hope. He didn't subdue Zod because he was the better fighter and winning, or because he was clearly stronger, or through some clever trick or twist of fate. It wasn't a gimmick, a gadget, or a deus ex machina. He won because he held on against all odds, and Zod didn't. We were given a man of steel, a character with the strength of an enduring will, even when things are stacked against him, rather than some papier-mâché positivity born of an idyllic and problem-free life. And that's why, despite being a figure of controversy, facing hatred, bigotry, rejection, and fear, he keeps saving people. He keeps choosing to believe that people can change, and he keeps hoping and fighting the never-ending battle. And that's why this is an inspiring underdog story, and not just the inapplicable tale about some freak anomaly of probability. Anyone can be like Zod. 
to be confident, strong, and a bully while you have the upper hand, and to give in to your emotions when things don't go your way. Fewer have the character of Clark to hang on, never give up, do what you have to do, and hope for change. That lesson in perseverance is throughout the film, but exemplified by this final fight and the character of Clark and Superman. Superman doesn't relish fighting. He's a reluctant warrior of necessity, not intention or desire. And I think that makes him a very interesting character foil against Batman and Wonder Woman in the upcoming film. We know from the recent Total Film article that Superman's sense of fair play continues on. And given what we've learned about Batman's level of anger, I expect a brutal and remorseless fighting style, not afraid of using whatever is at his disposal to win. And I'm guessing probably more broken bones than I'd like, but as long as we're not constantly looking at compound fractures, I can cope. They're going to have to adopt some of the stylized nature and tropes of martial arts so that Batman can be a vigilante who's prevailed all this time, but I think they're going to complement that with efficient ferocity to make it more intuitive. It's not as efficient as, say, shooting bad guys in the head, but no way Batman survives if he has to get into extended choreographed fights with every single henchman he meets. He has to drop them with one or two strikes, which means a level of violence which could make people question if the Batman should be allowed to operate, a level of force which might make Superman uncomfortable and bring him into conflict with Batman. Conversely, Wonder Woman has powers beyond Batman, but also a warrior culture and mindset, which Superman lacks. So she doesn't need to be as brutal as Batman to be effective or to survive. But she also isn't unfamiliar with fighting like Superman. We've seen from pictures her sword, shield, spear, and lasso. And when you combine that with her superhuman abilities, that should make for some stylized choreography that's going to be jaw-dropping. Although I'm not expecting Superman to have developed much more style or technique between Man of Steel and Batman v Superman, expect him to show the same kind of tenacity and indomitable will, endurance to take even Batman's hardest hits, and a heart that can pierce even Bruce's armor. Once supervillains become the norm in this world, then maybe Superman starts to obtain some martial training. Otherwise, any advances in his fighting will be the result of him learning how to better use his powers for saving people. For example, in the Comic-Con trailer, we can see him using flight and heat vision at the same time. And that technique has superhero utility beyond just combat. So it makes sense that he'd develop that and then later be able to use it in combat if the situation arose. Anyways, this kind of analysis can start to get insanely granular to the point that every punch can be put under the microscope and the history of every move questioned. And if I was a trainer or a corner man, then we would do our homework. We'd go over the video punch by punch, blow by blow, but that's beyond the scope of this podcast. We might get into the parts of the fights in more detail in the future, but I think I'm going to wrap up this part of the discussion for now. I had an entire section in my notes about Kryptonian martial arts from the comics, but I think they make for more interesting reads than discussion, so I'll put links in the show notes. There is way more to unpack here, but I'm out of time. It's going to be really interesting to see how or if Superman's fighting progresses into Batman v Superman and what kind of fighting styles or techniques the other characters bring into the world. I mean, even without formal training, experience counts for a lot. And in the span of 24 hours, Superman got a crash course in fighting for your life. Okay, (laughs) Uh, I think I've rambled on long enough. This is Dr. Awkward, your Man of Steel apologist, signing off. See you next time.
You're the answer, son. What? You're still here? Okay. Um, here's a couple of random clips for sticking around. First, I got a clip from somebody who worked on Batman v Superman and who created a lot of speculation surrounding the third act threat. This was recorded back in December 2014. This film, which is like, I don't know if you know, but I am a huge Superman fan. So to work on this is like, you know, there's two films I want to work on in my life and it's a Superman film and a Star Wars film. So I can, I can write off the list Superman. Next is Star Wars. <laughs> and so this one, can't say a word about, but I actually got to concept for this one as well, which was, you know, which was huge. And, uh, and it was, it's gonna be awesome. This film is gonna be, uh, it's gonna be really, really good. And um, yeah, I can't say anything. <laughs> it's, just, it's just bubbling up. It's like, oh, no, no, can't, can't say anything. So uh, there should be a trailer out for this soon. I think I don't know if I'm allowed to say that <laughs> but yeah so keep your eyes out I mean obviously there'll be a trailer soon this film's gonna be good I can't help but get infected by his enthusiasm. He really is a huge Superman fan, and he's done fan renderings of Darkseid and Brainiac out of sheer love. I'm so glad he got to work on a dream project. Another person who's been praising the production is Jesse Eisenberg, who recently shared his approach to Lex Luthor on a radio call-in show. In the upcoming film, Batman vs. Superman, you play the iconic character Lex Luthor, and I'm just curious as to who or what you channeled to portray that such an iconic character. Oh, well, thank you very much. Yeah, I've always noticed that, like, the best thing to channel as an actor is yourself, to figure out what makes you angry, what makes you feel vengeful or righteous. Those are the feelings that Lex Luthor has, and use that as opposed to kind of watching Gene Hackman, who's a great actor, obviously, and played that part originally, and think, well, how can I kind of mirror that? Because the truth is, me mirroring him would just come off weird. We have different faces, different life experiences, different emotions, but what I do have, that I have more than anybody, is my own feelings and so I use those and then the character seems not only real but emotional and just. You know, he believes he's the hero of his own story is the kind of actor cliche when you're playing the villain you're the hero of your own story and that's the kind of most interesting way for me as an actor and I think for an audience to appreciate as well. One other man who's hard at work at creating this cinematic DC universe, producer Charles Roven recently shared his thoughts with Collider. And with DC I've heard that the brain trust consists of Deborah, Zach, Jeff and so is that true? Let's start with that. I think also very much involved in that brain trust is John Berg, also, who's the executive vice president at Warner Brothers. But I would say the Snyders, myself, John Berg, and Jeff Johns would be sort of that brain trust. One of the strengths, I think, that can come with a, a group like that is you can sort of plan out and look at and examine what you guys are going to do. So how is it in those meetings, just geeking out as a fan, sort of having some control over all these DC properties? It's fantastic. I mean, it's really a tremendously exciting. I've got one of the greatest jobs of all time. So uh, I love going to work. What can I say? <laughs> and I'm working with great people. They're all really great people. And not that we don't, you know, there are many times that we agree. There's many times that we don't agree. We work it out. But the other thing that I really love about what we're doing is we're also bringing in really talented other filmmakers and having them come in and create, you know, I call it the sandbox, right? We're, we, we've got the sandbox of the Justice League DC characters, right? And we are hoping to create these series of movies that we've announced are somewhat interlinked, right? The characters, they move, they move in a through line that 
hopefully will take us all the way to Justice League 2, but they also can interact in the other films as well in some way, right? And if, for example, the Flash movie or the Aquaman film is going to come out after JL1, it's not going to be a completely different character. That character will have evolved from JL1, right? Wonder Woman will, when we see her in Justice League, will have evolved from Batman versus Superman. Unless we decide that in one of these stories we're going to do something that happened in the past and talk and have it be more an origination story, in which case that character, you'll realize how that character became what they were in the movie that they were first introduced. Right. So that's really challenging and interesting and you lay out a roadmap, but then when you bring somebody else in, that guy will go, well, you're going to San Francisco by Route 5. What if you took Route 101? Well, Hey, that's interesting. Maybe we should take Route 101. What if we did? Sure. Right? And so that changes the whole thing, and all of a sudden you realize you can actually get to where you need to get to by a whole different methodology than what you originally planned. Or you might decide to blend the roots, right? And by doing that, it's very fresh. You've got very fresh ideas, very interesting ideas. And um, it's just really a lot of fun if you've got really great collaborative minds working together to try to make things better, more interesting, more fun, more more, uh, provocative. And one more person who's worked on Batman v Superman weighing in, Zack Snyder at Bob Kane's induction onto the Hollywood Walk of Fame about Batman v Superman. Recently I got to make this film, Batman vs. Superman. And in the process, you know, I had to design a Batman character. I had to do a suit. And it's a very, I don't know if you know anything about the process, but what you do is you, over months of meticulous designing and editing, you kind of come to an aesthetic that you believe would be the Batman that you want to see. And along with my costume designer, Michael Wilkinson, we did just that. And uh, we came to this point where we were going to test the suit on Ben. So we had built a set of a... um, of like an alley, graffiti, barrels with fire, steamy stuff. And it was this very kind of noirish setting to film our Batman for the first time. And then put the suit on and we put him in front of the camera. You know, and I was just having him turn and look around, look Batman-ish. And it was amazing because I felt in that moment that I had achieved this goal that I had set out for myself. And when I looked at Ben, he had, he was this perfect personification of the Batman that I had in my mind. I've got another clip of Jonathan Gottschall on some of the appeal of watching fights as opposed to just violence. What really attracts us to these fights, I do think, is the drama of them. Uh, it's an incredibly intense showdown between two guys, an incredibly decisive climax to a story that promoters have been spinning in the lead up to the fight. And it's just this form of drama that's really intensely engaging to us. And by the way, I think counterintuitively, part of what draws us to these fights isn't just the worst angels of human nature. It's the best angels, too. <laughs> so what a fight does is it sets up a sort of counterfeit life and death situation that sort of forces the best elements of human nature to show themselves. I'm talking about things like courage and tenacity and perseverance and stamina and extremes of grace. So – you know, I think we tune into a, a sport fight partly uh, for dark reasons, but partly we're going there to celebrate and to honor these best elements of human nature. 
I think some are ready to condemn Batman v Superman as singing to the lowest common denominator or putting these characters forward as their worst selves. But if you've ever participated in sport fighting or become best friends with somebody after a childhood fight, you know that some aspects of our best selves come out in a fight which may be difficult to access any other way in normal civilized society. I'm not saying that every fight exemplifies all those romantic notions, but there is potential for some fights to have these elements. We're hopefully going to see two men of conviction with differing yet reasonable ideas clashing, and that conflict will only heighten the significance and the meaning of them putting aside those differences and cooperating at the end. Well, speaking of differing ideas, David Goyer was recently on the Nerdist podcast promoting Da Vinci's Demons, and he was made to discuss an answer for Man of Steel. Can I just ask you a question about Man of Steel? Please, go ahead. Don't take it the wrong way or anything like that, but how how could you let Superman kill that guy? (laughs) Does anyone hit you with that a lot? Yes, but for as many people as honestly hit me for that with that, mm. I get just as many people saying, awesome that you did that. Right. And so I think that the that's a classic example. But my of, question is to you, I guess less less to you as a writer, I guess more to you as like a fan of comics and, and, and uh, a fan of Superman. Do you want a real answer? Yeah, I would love to. Okay. I'd love to know. So uh, in that instance, like if you, the way I work, the way Chris works is you do what's right for the story. Mm-hmm. That exists entirely separately from what fans should should or shouldn't think of that character, right? You have to do what's right for the story. Okay. So in that instance, this was a Superman who, A, had only been Superman for like a week. Or even in a world that conceived of Superman existing, he'd only, he'd only flown for the first time a few days before right. that. He'd never fought anyone that had superpowers before. And so he's, A, going up against a guy who not only is superpowered, but who has been training since birth who exists as a superhuman killing machine, who has stated, I will never stop until I destroy all of humanity. And also from a thematic standpoint, we were it was a story about a guy who's the last of his kind, who's given this opportunity to have his kind back, but it means right. he's going to... If you, if you take Superman out of it, what's the right way to tell that story? Mm-hmm. I, I think the right way to tell that story is if you take this powered alien who says you can have your race back, but you have to kill your adopted race, the moral horrible situation to be in is to actually be forced to kill, not wanting to, but Mm -hmm. be forced to kill the only other person from your race and to sort of give that up. Take Superman aside. I think that's the right way to tell that story. The the other thing is, how does he solve the problem? There's no prison on the planet that can hold him. Our Superman in Man of Steel can't fly to the moon. How does he... He doesn't know how to fly to the moon yet. What does he do? But the other bull thing is like go to the comic books and he killed zod a couple of times in the comic books he killed zod in the john byrne comic books that's true i mean is it is it possible that part of his uh (laughs) that you know like if you're a kid you know, and you shoot a bird, and then it breaks your heart, and then you're like, "Oh, well, I'm not going to kill anything." The that rest of was my life. part of the point. Is there's a there's a you know that film could have been called Superman Begins. That was a film in which he's been hiding. That. That's a better name. But but you know my point yeah, is like yeah. he's not Superman until like the penultimate scene of that right. film, and then and then he doesn't understand that he has this sort of people think of him in a certain way there's no like superman kills or doesn't kill kind of thing that doesn't exist in this story yet and we were trying to do or within the framework of what it is a relatively realistic story about what if this guy existed yeah he could shoot a bird or a plane i 
Well, I, I listen. Thanks, I'm Kyle. satisfied with that answer. That was a, that's I just a great hadn't answer. Heard the answer. And also, it's interesting. It's interesting when you watch a universe that doesn't have. It's like watching Walking Dead and go, oh, they don't have. They don't know what zombies are. Or watching Superman, right. go, he doesn't yeah. have Superman right. comics. See, right. people are people are trying to apply their history, like a yeah. like like the way that Chris and I work is we don't do something because oh, well, that's the way mm-hmm. the fans would or wouldn't like it. We have to follow the sort of truth of the story. Yeah. And so, I don't know. You tell me how you should have solved that problem. Uh, in our version. In oh, our world. God. Phantom Zone? Can't do it? <laughs> no Phantom Zone. God damn what? it. He, there's no projector. There's, it got destroyed when the ship got destroyed. Oh, God. Shouldn't let that ship but get destroyed. To be fair, but to be fair, we were trying to construct the story in such a way so that he had no choice. Yeah. We won't, were trying to make it a Sophie's choice. But I've had, I have had people say, well, he could have flown Zod to the moon. And I'm like, no, he couldn't. I will say what I love, love, loved about the Batman vs. Superman latest trailer that came out after Comic-Con, what I loved about that was seeing Bruce Wayne running into the destruction. Well, again, that was the, that the was whole point there was that awesome. it, it doesn't, it's like, oh, what happened in that movie? Because everyone's like, wow, there's a lot of destruction. We're like, yeah. Mm. And we're going to talk about it, mm-hmm. like, like, because it's like you're trying to follow things through to its sort yeah. of logical, like it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Yeah, but it's also like I think like it's cool because like the audience, like the audience reaction of that of of Man of Steel was like, oh my god, there's so much destruction, all these buildings are going down, but you get to see sort of like, oh, that's how Bruce Wayne's going to deal but with it. But that. also, I know it's, it's like I know some people are like, oh my god, there's so much destruction. But our point was like, but there would be. Yeah, with yeah, like yeah. it's we don't we weren't trying to tell a story that it's not in a magical world where like this happens. Happens, where he pauses mid fight to save a puppy, or or like all these buildings collapse and like somebody wouldn't be hurt. Mm-hmm. It's like we were trying to say, well, what if this really happened? What are you most excited about with Batman versus Superman? Now that you know what's happening and you know, like, just being in that position where you said, oh, you know, I, I these movies where I, I hadn't come out yet. Honestly, I mean, I think the coolest thing that's is, is going to be a, a live action big budget version of Wonder Woman. I mean, I think that's the coolest. Yeah. I mean, it, everything else is awesome, but I I remember when we were first talking about doing that, that was just super exciting to us. The challenging thing about the DC films now, the post Nolan films, and the the fun thing and the challenging thing is 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 trying to say how can we what we've chosen to do is portray it in a in a slightly more realistic way, right? Mm. And so. On one hand, that's really exciting because it opens up a lot of dramatic possibilities that that you might not have thought of. On the other hand, it makes it harder, the suspension of disbelief harder because you have to like – you can't just do things in any of these films because that's the way they did in the comic books Mm -hmm. because we're trying to pretend as if these comic books don't exist. I do. I love – there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot about that trailer I love, but I also love how it looks like Lex Luthor has been like Silicon Valley startup guy. Like I love that. Like on a basketball court. Yeah, I think think if you you – think of who Lex Luthor would be today yeah. it feels like he'd be more in the Mark Zuckerberg yeah, you know for sure of, you know IPO good cast and getting Mark Zuckerberg yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> oh it's so good but also you, you have to think that a person like that to have achieved that level of wealth right, right has to be charismatic mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. I mean he, uh, how could he not be charismatic yeah. or it's like like I always thought he was like a combination of like Zuckerberg or Elon Musk or somebody like yeah. that yeah. Well, and I love yeah. Elon Musk 
but you, you, he had to be charismatic in and of his own right yeah. and also super smart. As much as fans may find themselves answering for their preferences, imagine how much more Goyer has to answer for his writing. I think he handled it well for something that's probably pretty annoying to him at this point. I don't take everything he says as gospel, but I think he made the main relevant points and justified their creative approach. And after that, it's largely a matter of subjective taste and opinion. We'll definitely get into the controversy of the finale in future episodes, but note that he doesn't just rely on the internal logic of the story. At the end, he owns the fact that they placed Superman in that situation, and will definitely address the creative reasons for doing that down the road. Considering the trials that Clark underwent and the proposal that the crest of the House of L means stronger together from CBS's Supergirl, I thought I'd end with this clip by Kelly McGonigal on the benefits of stress. And you can listen to the full talk on TED.com. But here's an interesting portion. The harmful effects of stress on your health are not inevitable. How you think and how you act can transform your experience of stress. When you choose to view your stress response as helpful, you create the bio of courage. And when you choose to connect with others under stress, you can create resilience. Now, I wouldn't necessarily ask for more stressful experiences in my life, but this science has given me a whole new appreciation for stress. Stress gives us access to our hearts, the compassionate heart that finds joy and meaning in connecting with others. And yes, your pounding physical heart working so hard to give you strength and energy. And when you choose to view stress in this way, you're not just getting better at stress, you're actually making a pretty profound statement. You're saying that you can trust yourself to handle life's challenges, and you're remembering that you don't have to face them alone. Thank you. You're the answer, son. 